Turn uh, with me back to this uh, amazing uh, little book of Habakkuk uh, with a story that uh, expresses thoughts and feelings that we may often have ourselves as we live in a world that is characterized by injustice, that is characterized in many places by violence, um, by deception, by destruction. Yet we will rejoice in God our Savior. I'll begin reading um, at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 and reading just through verse 5. Habakkuk is speaking here. Um, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Uh, It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of God. We ask, O Lord, that by your spirit you would be our teacher, uh, that you, spirit, would bring uh, to each one of us uh, what we need for this day and for the particular suffering through which we may be going. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is a book for our time. Habakkuk was himself uh, shocked by the violence and the destruction and the evil that he observed within the people of God around him, uh, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. And so he complained to God. God's response to him is, I'm going to tell you something that even if you were told, you wouldn't believe it. Hang on, Habakkuk. I'm going to send the Babylonians and they are going to shred you. They will destroy Jerusalem. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, will loot the temple, uh, take gold goblets uh, back to to Babylon, uh, cart off, deport our citizens, your citizens. And and, uh, Habakkuk uh, cries out with those questions, why? I thought you were an everlasting God. I thought you were a holy God. I thought you were a sovereign God. And God said, exactly. Now, D.C. is not Jerusalem. (laughs) Um, The United States uh, is not a continuation of Judah. The people of God is not at this time identified with any nation state. 
What will God do with us is a question that we may well ask. It is not the burden of this passage, however, at this time. Will he raise up a Babylonian beast? I don't know. Will he cause us to suffocate on our own uh, hubris and pride? I don't know. Will he bring revival? I pray so. But we don't know. We do know that this passage can be applied directly to the church. We are the people of God and we suffer. We suffer. We endure tiny forms of persecution in this country. Great persecution in other countries. But each one of us can also say, yes, this applies to me personally. And the question that we may well ask, perhaps all of us have at some time or another, why is this, whatever this is for you, why is this happening to me at this time? Perhaps you have been unjustly treated. I know some of you have been. Perhaps some of your dreams have simply been dashed by a a series of circumstances. I know that's the case for some of you. You suffer. Each one of us suffers from the evil that that comes out from us, but also the evil that happens to us in this fallen world. God answers um, Habakkuk's second complaint. You could say in different ways. We're going to start with just three words in the Hebrew, three words. And that is found in verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. That's the answer. If I may, if I may somewhat daringly say, that is the answer to all your problems and all your sufferings. The righteous shall live by faith. Now this phrase, this, this phrase is, is really the heart of the Christian gospel. Uh, it, this, this phrase is used three times in the New Testament, in Romans, Galatians, and then in Hebrews. And it is at the very heart of the Re- Reformation doctrine of justification by faith. How does a sinner get right with God? In Luther's day, the gospel was so encrusted by tradition, uh, and it was so hidden by uh, the, the works that we are called to do, that it was, it was, it was covered over, it was, it was clouded, it was, it was in fact removed. The way Luther was reading things during his day is that not that righteousness was a gift from God, but righteousness is what we must produce in order to be accepted by God. We must be righteous in order to receive uh, God's presence and blessing. And he said, this is impossible. I've tried it. It's impossible. I don't love God. I hate Him. And then Romans 1.17 flashed across his conscience like a comet across the sky shining light into darkness. The righteous shall live by faith. That God gives righteousness. We receive that by grace. We receive Christ alone. By grace alone. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 11, we are not saved by law keeping. We are saved by a gift of righteousness that comes from God 
and is for us. We receive by faith alone. This is our doctrine. This is our t- the teaching that, that Luther would say is the very foundation of the church. It is doctrine to be believed. And it is my prayer that each one of you believes this. That you are able to look away from self and behold Christ and His righteousness, which, and we receive the gift of Christ and His righteousness by grace through faith alone. That is my prayer. As wonderful as that idea is, it is not what this text here is centering on. This is not centering simply on a doctrine to believe, but it is on a life to be lived. It is focusing on a practice, something that you live throughout your life. The righteous, by their faith, shall live day after day, in every chaotic moment, When you are confused, you live by faith. When you are discouraged, you do not live on the basis of what you see, but on the basis of what you believe. And you are tempted to give up, but you look instead to Christ and what he has offered us by his death and resurrection. And so our question for the morning is, um, how will you live by faith now? And especially in the midst of your suffering. How will you live by faith today, especially in the midst of your suffering? Now, verse 4 opens up and just describes in very sharp language two basically different, two um, foundationally different ways to live, sharply different ways. And and the one is is the proud and puffed up person, Uh, the one who is crooked. Uh, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright Within him. This is the one, verse 5, that we'll go on to say, he is dis- looking at three words here. Greedy, I'm sorry, deceived, greedy, and restless. That's what we're looking at as we consider the one who does not live by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him, but instead is feeding upon himself and what he's able to do. The first thing is he is deceived. What he consumes, and in verse 5, it happens to be wine. It can be a lot of things. What he consumes uh, will save him. That's his belief. Whether it's wine or whether it is stuff. And the man of faith knows that those things will not ever deliver what they promised. Uh, Whatever you hoard will rot. Come back to it later, and it'll have worms in it. The proud one, the crooked one, is first of all deceived, and secondly, he is greedy. His soul is puffed up with his lust. It is puffed up in such a way like a balloon that even a pinprick can pop it and destroy it. It it is a life built on, on a house of cards. He's grasping for more and more. It is never enough. Greed, look at that. Greed is as wide as death. There are no limits to it. It it encompasses everything. He lives by greed, but that is a life of death. He is deceived. He is greedy. He is also restless. And of course, our minds go to the opening chapter of St. Augustine's Confessions where he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And we understand that. 
to be the fate of mankind who is deceived and greedy and therefore lives a life of restlessness. Uh, Always wanting more, wanting bigger, wanting better. Jealous for those who have more than he. Envious of their stuff. And angry because God has not given him the hand that he would have wished. The unrighteous and proud person will die in his arrogance, but the righteous one shall live by faith. Or possibly here by faithfulness as he looks at the God of the covenant and purposes to be faithful in his response to him. He is trusting God. He is clinging to God by faith. And I love the phrase from the Apostle. It's in the context in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where Paul is talking about the seduction of wealth. Those who pursue wealth and pursue some kind of stability on the basis of it. This is Paul's phrase. You instead have the life that is really life. Interesting. It sounds colloquial, doesn't it? He thinks he's living with all his wealth. But you have the life that is really, truly life. The just shall live by faith. So, we have to answer the question. It's not always quite that sharp, is it? That there are certain people who are proud and puffed up while others aren't? We have to recognize that some of that impulse is in ourselves as well. And so we purpose to lay hold of truth, to see God work in us, to see our hearts peeled off those things that we love more than Jesus, if I may put it that way, and then live in humility and confession and by the power of the Spirit in in new obedience. And there are four things that the Apostle mentions here or that the Prophet mentions here that, that really describe for us what does the righteous man look like? What does he do? How does he live? How does the righteous man, woman, child live by faith? Four things I want to point out from from, uh, verses 2 and following. The first thing is that you know God's plan. And I would say you trust it. You know it and you trust God's plan. And God explained his plan here to Habakkuk. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. The Lord answered me, write the vision, write the vision, the truth, the scriptures, if you will, write the vision, uh, make it plain on tablets, probably not stone like what Moses wrote upon, but probably a plank. Uh, you, you see that uh, carving in wood planks that, that are, are, are pointing you in a particular direction. Uh, Write the vision, make it plain so that everybody can see it. Everybody needs to know this uh, on tablets so that he may run who reads it. True enough, the vision awaits its appointed time. It's not right now. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. This This is going to happen. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Don't those words echo in your heart even today as you wait for Jesus? Hang on. Hang on. Here, 
the Lord is saying. I want, I want my people to hear and to see the Word of God so, so they have it, so that they can carry it and share it with others. Now, the Word of God is, is a little bit broader than that for, uh, for in Habakkuk's day. It is not just the righteous shall live by faith, but it also includes this message that, yes, Babylon will come. Babylon will come in a few years, probably fewer than 12. Babylon will be there, will crush you. Um, but, he'll go on to say, the Lord will go on to say, Babylon will not get away with it. They'll hurt you, but I will get them. And you are to trust God's word through and through. So we know, uh, from a different point of view, we know what God's plan is for us, don't we? We know what God's plan is as it's fulfilled in Christ. And I want to ask you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 as we, as we look at, at this marvelous, marvelous chapter in contrast to the visions uh, that, uh, that, that um, Habakkuk was to record and, de- and deliver. This is the message, the plan that we now count on. We know, we know, and we love. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read the first three verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the completed revelation of God. We need seek no other. God has revealed his, his, his truth fully, uh, completely, uh, truthfully uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And these three things I want you to keep in mind that G- is the heart of our, of God's plan for us that we are to believe by faith that rest upon Jesus rescues, Jesus rules, Jesus will return. Three R's. You got it? He rescues. He rules. He will return. He has completed the purification for your sins and so He is seated on the throne until He will come again. And so that is what we, that is the, the plan that we count on. We live by what we believe rather than by what we see or feel. And even so, we are tempted in the course of our ups and downs, in the course of our our sufferings in this life, we're tempted to ask this question, how can this, whatever it is for you, how can this be a part of this grand plan of Jesus purifying and ruling and coming again. God says uh, he will be his own interpreter, that we are to live by his wisdom and not our own. The appointed time is coming, in the words of Habakkuk. God will subdue all unrighteousness. Jesus will return in glory. And until then, my dear people of God, hack on by faith.
Jesus rescues, he rules, and he will return. Second aspect of the life of the person who lives by faith is he will share that plan. He knows that he knows and trusts in God's plan. Secondly, he will share that plan. If God, if you believe that God has spoken, you, you must share it. It was written on tablets so that it could be carried and shared with other people. What God says needs to be spread. What God said needs to be spread. We think back in the, the story in the Old Testament where the lepers were surrounding the city of Samaria and the, and, and the, the Syrians were, were camped. Syrians were parked there in their tents waiting for the people to die of starvation. It was a pathetic picture. But God came and, and remember, drove the Syrians away. And then those lepers were were scouting out the Syrians' camp. They were looking inside the tent. Are are they really gone? Maybe they're over here. Look over here. Are they really gone? They must be gone. And then they had all of this food and all of this wealth. And it didn't take them long to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've got to tell the city. Got to get everybody involved in this glorious wealth delivered by the hand of God. Those without Christ simply can't make sense of God's world. Do you understand that? They look confident. They look competent but they are deceived and they need to hear a message. They need to know God's plan. I'm going to tell you this morning a story of two men. Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, it's, it's in 1775. Oh, goody. American Revolution. All right. Um, the British are planning a surprise attack on Lexington uh, because uh, a guy by the name of John Hancock, another one, uh, by, the, by the name of Sam Adams. Man, what great names, right? They're over there in Lexington. The British have planned to, to, to silently slip up there and capture those two ringleaders uh, of this crazy American revolution. It was April 18th, 1775, and at 10 p.m., a man by the name of Paul Revere, Paul Revere, got on his horse, and he began what history will call the midnight ride of Paul Revere, right? And he covers 13 miles. He, he, um, he, he interacts with, with those citizens in about four or five cities. Uh, Charleston, uh, Medford, North Cambridge, and one that I couldn't even pronounce, so I'm not going to say it. And, and he, was re- he went to those cities starting at 10 o'clock in the evening. And he, and he said, the British are coming, the British are coming, tell others. And, and, and gather the militia. And the church bells were ringing, and, and there were all kinds of drums, and it was, it, it, it was electric as people were responding to this. Well, uh, overnight, listen, listen to this, overnight, the news got to Lincoln, a town nearby, by 1 a.m. It got to Sudbury, another town, at, at, by 3 a.m. By 5 a.m., it had traveled 40 miles uh, to the town of Andover, uh, right on Route uh, 695 by Route 93. There's a there's a, a Longhorn where Gail and I have dinner every time we drive up to Maine. We know right where that is, um, and, um, and 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 the people were alerted. The British began mark, mark, marching the next morning uh, uh, over to Lexington, and they were absolutely stunned that there was a party waiting for them, and they were thrashed. That's the story of Paul Revere. 
He had a message. He knew how to communicate it. And people responded. And disaster was averted. Now I'm going to tell you very briefly about a guy you've never heard of. There was a guy named William Davies who who went uh, with the same message, covered about the same number of miles, 13 miles, about the same number of towns, and yet on his route, people stayed in bed, nobody got up, Hardly anybody got up to join the militia and go face the British. Why is that? Well, Paul, Paul Revere was an amazing person. Um, he, was, he was a connector. He was involved in many different areas of, of political and social life in, in, in the Boston area. He knew people. He was connected to people. He was able, by his enthusiasm of, of, hear, of knowing this message, that, that he, would con, he would talk with people. He, he, was, he was absolutely fine knocking on someone's door at, at midnight or after and, and waking them up and telling them the news. People trusted him. They knew who he was. He knew which doors to knock on. He knew who to wake up. He knew who would then be able to help spread that news uh, in other places. William Davies knew the message, but he was a very passive individual, didn't know what doors to knock on, didn't have the courage to pound until someone got out of bed, and rather sheepishly stayed on a horse and said, the British are coming, the British are coming, get ready, and then moved on to the next town. What is all this for? You have a message, and you can tell it like William Davies told it or like Paul Revere told it. This is what I mean. You have an opportunity. You have an opportunity no one else has. Your interwoven network of friends, the people that you know and see in your neighborhood, the person who pumps your gas, the person who checks your groceries at Aldi or wherever you shop. You know these people. You can connect with them because you do not see them as piece of furniture or a servant to simply service your needs and then you just get get in your car or go back home and silently about it. You see them as image bearers of God with eternal souls. And so, like Paul Revere, you begin to, you begin to cultivate relationships. To speak with them. So you notice, first of all, very simple, you notice that people are people. People are people. They are not your servants, and they are not a piece of furniture. Well, then you can pray. Second thing you do is pray. Pray, Lord, um, I pray that you would work by your spirit in this friend of mine through time. As you're, as you're concerned about this person, change their heart so that they can be a part of your rescue plan. You pray. So you notice people as people, you pray, and, and then you have opportunities as you engage them. It is, I'm not going to say invariable, because I don't know, but 
it seems like it's inevitable. It seems like it's inevitable that as you uh, get close to another person, um, even if it's across the counter closeness in a grocery store, and you're friendly and you're saying hello, how are you? You're learning about that person, and before long, you will hear of their pain. You will hear of their pain. They will give you something to respond to. The Spirit is overseeing this. And so you have this story on your lips that Jesus um, rescues, uh, Jesus rules, and Jesus will return. Know God's plan. You trust God's plan. So you share God's plan. The, second, the third thing is you know how big God's plan is. You know it is very, very big. The puffed up person is too proud to listen to God. He's too proud. And he has a very small world. It is no bigger than his own greedy appetites and desires for personal comfort. He's in a, he's in a restricted, constricted world where he does not have freedom. But Christians have a much larger view of life. History is going somewhere. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. God's not toying with us here. It, it, is, it is purposeful and heading towards the end. It will not lie. I, I, I also love the story of, um, well, well, King, King Belshazzar, son of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, where, where Habakkuk is standing right now, all he sees is the vicious power of the Babylonians coming down the road. He's, he's, he's quaking in his boots, but he doesn't realize just how vulnerable they are. They're powerful, but he doesn't see how vulnerable they are. And so the story of, of, of King uh, Belshazzar. Bill, he's having a banquet one day, and he's got a thousand of his closest friends, the various rulers and, and leaders in, 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 the, in the realm, and they're, they're just partying, man. They're just partying. And someone gets the idea, well, let's use the golden goblets. As we're worshiping our false gods, let's use the golden goblets uh, out of the temple uh, that, my, that Nebuchadnezzar stole in, um, in, from Jerusalem. And it is, uh, it, it is uh, while, while, they're, while they're in the midst of that uh, revelry, that uh, have, you, have you heard the phrase, you see the handwriting on the wall? Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah. The original story is right here in Belshazzar, in in uh, in Daniel uh, chapter ten. Um, he sees the handwriting, a literal a hand, no arm, with a finger, and making these markings on the wall. And and he says, "I need help." Uh, someone mentions Daniel. Daniel comes to him and he first lectures him. He says, "You didn't learn a thing from your father, did you? God humbled him." He, he made him like an ox and put him out in the field and you didn't learn squat, Belshazzar. How dumb can you be? And, and then this is what, and this, this is what, um, this is what was, was the translated message that was on the wall. The interpretation is this. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. How's that? Wake up. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that night, Darius came into the city and broke up the party. 
And like that, the Babylonian Empire was done. Medes and Persians wouldn't last forever. Alexander the Great and the Greeks would come and destroy that empire. Alexander the Great would not last forever. The kingdom was divided up. Finally, the, the, uh, the Romans would take it. And it was during the course of the Roman Empire that another king was born. The long-awaited Messiah. And he arrived. When did he arrive? Right on time. It is a kingdom not of this world. And yet know this, that in Christ the end has begun. The end has begun. The countdown has started. And God's purposes are all moving towards Jesus' return when justice will catch up to everyone. Wrongs will be righted and the oppressed will be set free. And if it seems slow, again the words of Habakkuk, if it seems slow... (laughs) Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. And that helps you to make sense of the chaos that's going on in your life right now. It is part of God's plan. If you've you've, um, spent any time with my wife, and I've spent a lot of time with her, this this is a phrase I hear from the Psalms a lot. All... Things are his. All things are, come on, his servants. All things are his servants. Part of his plan for your holiness, um, your annoyances are God's tools. (laughs) Your disruptions to your schedule are part of God's plan. He's right on time. What are, the, what are the lessons that the church can learn, for example, about the disruption of COVID? I'm not going to answer this question for you, but I want you to think about it. What, what have we learned or can we learn? Will we look back and say, this is what God did? Did he make us, um, did, can we emerge from this period stronger and more uh, resilient as Christians? Can we do that? Will our courage have been strengthened? Will we have greater steel in our, back, in our backbone? Will we see the value of loving people despite our differences? And boy, if there isn't a perfect storm of differences in our, in our country right now, the political sphere, the, 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 the field of, of justice, as it's called, and, and the COVID response from uh, believers and unbelievers alike. Are we loving others in their differences? Being truth-tellers and lovers at the same time. Are we treasuring worship? I think we will. I hope we don't, I hope we don't forget these things too soon. Will our longing for heaven be enhanced? These are the lessons that we can... And many others that you can deal with on your own... But, but lastly, and, and I hope briefly here, we, 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 we know and we uh, trust God's plan. We share God's plan. It is a big plan. And finally, we wait patiently for God's plan to unfold. We wait, we wait um, patiently 
for God's plan to unfold. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not. It will not delay. All, all Habakkuk had was what he could see at that time. He had a very small slice, a very brief moment. All he knew at this point it was that Babylon was going to be at the door and it was going to be a real mess and that they were going to be punishing God's people. That's all he knew at this point of this book. And he cannot, what sense does that make? I don't get it, he's saying. But wait, wait for it. Uh, Habakkuk's vision later would describe an appointed time. Uh, it seems slow, but, but disaster will come on Babylon as well. Now, um, he's saying, be patient. The Lord is saying, be patient and, and don't panic because God, uh, God is, working, is, working, is working good. Now, as I said to you before, uh, there are three times that um, this phrase, the just shall live by faith, appear in the New Testament. Um, in, in both Romans and in Galatians, it is in what we might call the classic reformational sense that God, uh, God accepts us on the basis of our, our confidence, our union with Christ, who is our righteousness, and that is, that is our rock-solid foundational doctrine. But there's another text that uses this same verse, the righteous by their faith shall live. Hebrews chapter 10 uses it in the way that Habakkuk uses it. It is the closest to Habakkuk's own situation. And it is the situation that we are in, dealing with suffering. Uh, Habakkuk says this. Uh, he, he says, there, there is a vision, it's awaiting its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It, it, it. There is a plan that is coming. It is unfolding. The Septuagint, the, the, uh, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, translates it the way that it shows up in Hebrews. And listen to this. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come. Not an it, but a him. The coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We're not waiting for it to come. We're waiting for Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come, who has already come in power by His Spirit. And the outpouring of Pentecost was was a coming of Christ through the Spirit to nourish and strengthen His church until Jesus would come bodily again. But we still wait for Him. He will surely come He will not delay. He will be right on time. When you're tempted to despair, remember, He will come. His time is near. God's perfect time. So what do you do while you're waiting? How do you live by faith today? I'm going to suggest two things briefly. You may be tempted uh, to look away from God and His Word. You may be tempted to look away. Because your troubles are so bad, it just seems so overwhelming. And so you just sort of give up on looking in God's Word. In your trouble, do you look away from God? No, 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 no. Do not lean on your own interpretations or your own understanding, but look to God. Look to God when you are without otherwise hope. 
And the second thing is this quotation from Isaiah. The Lord is a just God, a righteous God. Who calls us to righteousness? The Lord is a just God. Um, All who wait patiently for him are happy. Are happy. Are blessed. He's a just God. He has removed your sins. He rules perfectly. And he is coming again. So you can be happy. And you can rejoice in God your Savior when the pens are empty and the fields are bare. Let's pray. Oh God, purify our hearts. Um, rip, rip out that selfishness um, and that pride and hubris that so often um, has tentacles around our hearts. And let us, uh, let us live um, um, by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for us. And let us not let go of that in the midst of the trouble of today. Never, never, never let go of that so that we may live with joy in our hearts and with thankfulness to you and be pointers to the beautiful Savior and his inevitable return. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.